0: Psalm 126, 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Isn't that kind of exciting when you think about that? That God does things for everybody. And even when we see what he's doing in other nations, we should shout and praise and give glory to him because he's doing a mighty work in our time. Just like Elisha did. When we look at what he did last week, when we studied it, what was it that he did? He had miracles that he did. He helped a woman whose husband had died and had no way to pay her debt. So he tells her get all the jars around the town. Well, it doesn't matter if they're empty or full. Bring them into your house, close the door, and take that little flask of oil that you have and continue to fill until all your jars are filled. The next thing that we saw was that he had this one woman and her husband that was like, well, they were very kind to him. And they said, well, stop and eat. And so he did. And they kept on doing that. So they said, hey, let's build him a room. And so they did that too. And he enjoyed it. And he appreciated so much that he asked, what can I do for you? And she goes, nothing. We're just happy as can be the way we are. But his servant, Gehazi, said, well, you know, she is childless. And so Elisha said, call her, call her. And so she comes forward and he goes, this time next year, you're going to have a son. And she's like, oh, don't mess with me this way now. Well, she did. She had the son, just like he said. And as the child grew older, the child went out in the field with his father and became ill and died. And she didn't be con- She wasn't concerned. It was an upsetting time, but she knew that Elisha could help bring him back to life. So she put him on, put the child on his bed and then went to get him. And when he came back, guess what he did? Remember, he had the double spirit of Elijah, his good friend and mentor. And he brought this child to life just like Elijah did the other gal happy days. And then we find out that he tells a bunch of the prophets around the area, make a stew. And one of them gets us uh, poisonous vines and gourds by mistake. And they chop them up and they put them in the stew. And they take that first bite. And it's like, I'm sure somebody had an instant stomachache and Ralph, and said, this stuff is poison. And he goes, don't worry don't waste it, bring me some meal and some flour. And he added it to it and diluted it. And he goes, let's eat. And they did. It. And it was all good. And the last thing we saw was that somebody brought him some first fruits, 20 little loaves of barley. And like I said, we're talking little loaves. Something that I said might be something that if I'm eating spaghetti, I might eat one loaf with my spaghetti. There's 20 of them. And he tells his his servant, serve them to the people. And there's 100 men. And his servant goes, well, okay, but what else am I going to give? And he says, that, give it, serve it. Because God said, not only will they eat and be full, we're going to have leftovers. And it was basically just like Jesus feeding of the five what a cool thing. None of these miracles were done because of Elisha. It wasn't him that said, I can do this in my power because I have the double. I have the double spirit of Elijah, so I can do it. No, it was from through God and his mercy and his grace that he was able to do these through his prayer and faith to God. And what did it do? It enabled all the people to see God's in control. God's in charge. Have a little faith and trust in God, and you will be surprised at what he can do. Well, this week we're going to start off, and the whole chapter is this wonderful thing that takes place. And it's for what I think that he's mostly known for, Elisha, that is. You know, yeah, when you think of Elisha's name, yeah, the... Oil might come to mind. The raising of the child from the dead might come to mind. I never think of the stew or the the 20 loaves. But I do think about this chapter. And that's where we're going to see that he cures leprosy. Something that hasn't taken place since Miriam fought with Moses over who was in charge and who was in power. And it hasn't happened from this time forward until Christ comes. We don't ever hear about somebody being cured of leprosy. So with that, let's pick up with 2 Kings 5, verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Naaman was the chief military commander uh, of the persistent enemy to both Israel and Judah. As recently as the days of Ahab and Jehoshaphat, Syria had fought and won against them. 1 Kings 22, verses 34 through 36. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel on the joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of the chariot, turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. The battle raged that day and the king was propped up in the chariot in front of all the Arameans and he died at evening and blood from the wound ran into the bottom of the chariot. Then a cry passed throughout the army close to sunset saying, every man to his city, every man to his country. Name, his position and success made him a great and honorable man. Personally, he was a mighty man of valor. The reason I reference this set of scripture is because according to Jewish legend, that certain man, they say was Naaman, who withdrew, who drew his bow and just let it fly. They say it was him. Whether it was or not, I don't know. But I know Naaman had a lot going for him. He was the general of generals for the king of Syria. All of this was great. He was honorable, he was, had power, he was prestigious, everybody knew him, but he had one devastating thing against him. He was a leper and nobody wants to be around a leper. Oh my gosh, I don't care if you believe in God or not. Nobody wants to be around him. Because he was a leper, It just meant that he had a horrible and incurable disease that would slowly result in his death. Today's times, they don't normally die a slow, horrible death because we have medicines that they can take. But back then, there was nothing except God. And whose God is stronger? You see, no matter how good and successful everything else was in his life, that leprosy was still a downfall. And he really wanted to be cured of it because when you think about it, in those days, ancient leprosy began with small little red spots that would go to portions of your skin. And before long, them spots would get bigger and they would turn white. And then your hair would fall out and your eyebrows would fall out. And pretty soon, pieces of your body would start to rot and fall off. And it always started like around your your face and that. So your nose would go, the palate would go, your lips would go, you'd go blind, your finger. It was a horrible disease. It would keep eating away until you wasted away and died. Second Kings five, verses two and three. Now the Arameans had gone out and bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. The girl was uh, basically an unwilling missionary. Now, wasn't she? She was taken captive away from her parents and taken away. And luckily, she fell under Naaman's service, him and his wife. And she illustrates the mysterious ways God works. And we see this all throughout Scripture with some people that are captured. And about a week after next, when we hit into Daniel, guess what? We're going to see another one of these type deals. She was probably raised in a godly home, yet taken away from the family at a young age. Yet she was greatly used in a simple way. I would have to believe that she was treated really, really nice because otherwise there's no way that she would say, I really wish my master Naaman could go to Samaria and be with the prophet because he could cure him. Psalm 8 verse 2, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. This young girl was an outstanding example of a faithful witness in her current circumstance. You see, just like Joseph, it didn't matter what circumstance he was in. What did he do? He was a witness for God. He lived for God. And I think that this young girl did the same thing. She cared enough to speak up to her master's mistress and say, I wish he would go do this. She had enough faith in in Elisha that he could and would heal him of the leprosy. And when his wife told him, he went to the king. 2 Kings Kings 5, verse 4 through 7. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, and now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, am I God to kill and to make alive? that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. Considering the record of wars uh, between Israel and Syria described in the previous chapters, it seems strange that the king of Syria would send a letter of recommendation with his general. It's possible that 2 Kings is not necessarily arranged chronologically in what's going on. Because remember, sometimes you'll find in the Bible that it will say something and then it'll fill in details later. And this may be one of those situations. This may have taken place when there was a little less tension between the countries. Those talents of silver that Naaman took with them would be worth over $1.6 million today. And those 6,000 shekels of gold well, that's another four mil. And the changes of clothes. So this man is carrying with him almost seven million dollars worth of stuff. That's how important he was to the king. I want my man healed. He's a good man, he's a kind man, he's my right-hand man. Ephesians 4:18. Their minds are full of darkness, they wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and harden their hearts against him. When the king of Israel read this letter, he panicked. He panicked and he tore his clothes and he's understandably upset. First, it was obviously out of his control to cure leprosy. Who the heck am I? I'm not God. I can't cure anything. Second, he had no relationship with the prophet Elisha. He hated him just as much as they all hated Elijah. They want nothing to do with him. But you know, he thought the king of Syria wanted to pick the fight. And this is how to do it. But unfortunately for him, the king of Syria only assumed that he had a better relationship with the prophet of God. It's no different than us. How many times do we have somebody come up to us and tell us, I want you to pray for this and this and this and this. And then when it doesn't come true to what they want, what do they do? Well, you must not be that good of a Christian. And it's like, no. I'm really there. But you expected something to happen that maybe God's answer was no. You see, the king of Assyria or Assyria thought that he had a better relationship with God than he really did. After all, he was supposed to be the king of the nation. 2 Kings 5, verses 8 and 9. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. What did Elisha basically do? He basically gave a general rebuke to the king of Israel that was implying this crisis, this is just a crisis to you because you have no relationship with God and God can heal the lepers. But it is a needless crisis. And it's one that you could easily fix. Naaman would never know that there was a prophet in Israel if uh, Elisha didn't come and say, send him to me. Because the royal palace didn't like him. They didn't want him around. So he'd have been waiting there forever. 2 Kings 5, verses 10 through 12. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned to him and went away in a rage. Naaman took the trouble to come to the home of Elisha, but Elisha refused to see him personally. All he did was send him a messenger. This was humbling to Naaman. He's used to being treated with great respect, great honor. And by golly, I brought $7 million worth of goods with me to give to you to cure me. And what did he do? He sent out a servant who gave a simple cure. Dude, go dip yourself in the, river, in the river Jordan seven times and you'll be cured. It was uncomplicated. It was easy peasy. Yet Naaman's reaction demonstrates those were humbling instructions. How dare him diss me this way? Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Naaman had it all figured out, didn't he? In his great need, he anticipated a way God would cure him. And he was offended when God didn't work the way he expected. Are we the same? Are we the same in today's world? God, I am in need. God, I need this. And by God, you're going to do it. And when he doesn't, what do we do? We get mad at him. We become angry, disappointed, upset. Because his expectation of how God should work crushed Naaman the way it did. He didn't want to have anything to do with Elisha. I'm not buying this mumbo jumbo. If the answer was in washing in a river, Naaman knew there were better rivers in his own land. 2 Kings 5.13. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, Wash and be clean? Wow. We all need people who speak the truth to us in plain English. Because sometimes we are too stupid to see past what is good for us. We get upset and we don't allow ourselves to see that sometimes the answer is so simple. Naaman was obviously angry and yet they were bold enough to give him the good advice he needed to hear. Proverbs eleven fourteen, 14, where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. The servants of Naaman used a brilliant, logical approach. If Elisha had asked Naaman to sacrifice a hundred or a thousand animals, by God, would he have done it immediately? He would have run out, all right, I can do this. Yet because his request was easy to do and humbling, uh uh-uh, he first refused to do it. But somehow his servants got through to him. 2 Kings verse 5, 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. The word translated as dip, to ball, literally could mean to plunge, to fully immerse, to wholeheartedly do it. And I think this is what he did. I don't think that he just sat there and, dipped little pieces or got cups of water in his hand and went splash. No, I think he probably came to the realization, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it wholeheartedly. And he plunged himself. And each time he plunged himself and came up, I bet he noticed that something, there was a change on his skin. And he went at it more and more. Naaman did exactly what Elisha told him to do. And as a result, we can say that each dunk in the Jordan was a step in faith. Every time he went under and came up, he was cleaner and purer than he was before. Naaman's response of faith was generously rewarded. God answered his faith with a complete and miraculous healing. Do you think he was still mad? I don't think so. I think he looked at this and went, well, how come I didn't just do it before? The simple method of this miracle performed without the prophet there gave God 100% of the credit. It was obvious that the healing came from God rather than Elisha being there doing some kind of mumbo-jumbo and arm-waving like he expected to have happen. 2 Kings 5, verses 15 and 16. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Well, well, this was a fine display of gratitude. I did what you said and you won't accept payment. Naaman was like a, uh, the one leper out of the 10 that Jesus healed who came back to thank Jesus. Luke 17, verses 12 through 19. As he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at distance met many, and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, he turned turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at the feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was one found to return glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Think about that one for a minute. This was even easier than dunking yourself seven times in a river. Go and show yourself to the priest. And as they went, the one returned. Naaman, he was a foreigner too. And he came back to give glory to God. I have a hard time understanding sometimes we do the same thing. We have God do something for us, but do we return and give him glory and honor? Sometimes I think not. Sometimes I think we're just so overjoyed that he answered something and and did whatever that we needed that... We just forget. Now he returned to the man of God and stood before him. Look, I'm clean. I did just what you said, it's so awesome, thank you. Here, let me give you something. And he knew it was not the prophet. He knew that it wasn't because of him. It was because he relayed a word that he got from God to a servant to him. So it had nothing to do with Elisha. It was God and he knew it. Naaman only meant well by this gesture. He felt it was appropriate to support Elisha in his ministry. After all, he's got a bunch of schools that he has to take care of. But you know, He felt it was uh, appropriate to support that ministry, but he said, no, Genesis 14, 23, I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear. You would say I have made Abraham rich. You see, that's what his problem was here. He steadfastly insisted that he would receive nothing from Naaman. He was not a prophet for hire. He did not go to God to be paid for the troubles and the services. It was something totally different. And he did not want anyone to think anything different. No, I don't need payment for doing a nice thing. It wasn't even me, it was God. Give your glory and honor to him and not me. Second Kings 5, verses 17 through 19. Naaman said, if not, if not, "'Please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth. "'For your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, "'nor will he sacrifice to other gods, "'but to the Lord. "'In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. "'When my master goes into the house of Remen "'to worship there, and he leans on my hand, "'and I bow myself to the house of Remen, "'when I bow myself in the house of Remen, "'the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. "'And he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. Think about that one. Like many new believers that come to Christ, Naaman was superstitious in his faith. He held the common opinion of the ancient world that particular deities had power over particular places. Well, obviously, the God in all the earth lives in Israel. He thought that if he took a piece of Israel back with him to Syria, he could better worship God there doing that. And as an official in the government of Syria, Naaman was expected. Remember, he's the right-hand man of the king. He's expected to go in and worship with him. Roman. He don't wanna do it, but he knows he's gonna have to. He asked Elijah for the allowance to direct his heart to God, even when he was in the temple of Rimen. If I've gotta go in there, please let my heart be with God and try and block out all the sounds and the sights and everything else. The Hebrew word for the lean on the hand, it does not imply that's physical. It literally means he is the second guy in charge. He's next to the king. He's his right hand guy. He has to do this. Otherwise, what could happen? He could be killed. By generally approving, by not specifically saying yes or no, Elijah basically left this up to God and him. I can't tell you what to do. Go to God, let God deal with it. God will give you guidance. Maybe Elisha thought by sending him on his way in peace said, well, God will deal with him. God will talk to him and tell him what to do. Romans 15, verses 8 and 9. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. You see, this would have been just a perfect, wonderful time for Naaman to go back to the king of Syria and say, guess what? God of Israel is the God of everything. If God we served and worship. could have cured me, why didn't he? I had to go elsewhere, and I know that he is God overall. Remember, this king gave him all kinds of money and stuff and a letter of recommendation and sent him with all kinds of clothing and stuff, all this great reward. And his God of Syria wouldn't, couldn't because it's not a real God. This would have given the king something to think about. Well, maybe I'm worshiping the wrong God. Maybe we're thinking things totally wrong. I would have to think that he wanted this dirt not to take and throw in to the temple of Rome. I mean, after all, what happens when God gets around other things? Them other things have a tendency to have issues. Them other deities don't seem to be able to stand. That makes people upset. So I've got a feeling that he took this dirt to make himself an earthen altar so that he could literally worship God God, with no one else there, without the king, he would make his own altar to the one true God in all the earth. 2 Kings 5, verses 20 through 24. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean, by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw the one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me saying, behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, be pleased to take two talents." And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. As Gehazi heard Naaman and Elisha speak, he was shocked. He was dismayed. Here this man, this wealthy guy has all this stuff that he's willing to give you and you won't take a single nickel. He figured that someone should take something from him. He figured, well, Elisha deserves something. I'll get it for him. So he takes off and he chases him down. And he became exactly what Elisha avoided. He became a taker of gifts for the mercy that God freely provided. Proverbs 21, verses 6. Wealth created by a lying tongue is vanishing, is a vanishing mist and a deadly trap. Yahazi probably thought that, well, look at this. God is blessing me. I asked for one talent and he's given two. The fact that he handed them to two of his servants shows that it was a lot of silver, about 120 pounds. Now, I'm not so sure, and I couldn't really figure it out, but I'm kind of guessing that this may have been two of the servants of prophets that were with Gehazi from from Israel. It could have been two men of the servants of Naaman that he sent with him back to carry the the, the silver. I haven't quite figured out which. So I'm going to assume, I know that's not a good thing to do, assume, but right now I'm going to assume that it was two people that he brought with him. And even if he didn't bring two people with him, it still all comes out the same in the end. Luke 17, uh, 17, verses one and two. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. When they departed, these guys were given money. Whether it's Elisha's uh, to guys, friends of Gehazi, or if it was the two servants of of Naaman. It doesn't matter when they departed. They didn't even make it all the way back because, well, Gehazi stopped and hid the stuff that he received and sent the other two guys away. He knew what he did was wrong, but it was worse that he caused these two guys to sin. It would be even worse if they were prophets and servants that he knew 2 Kings 5, verses 25 through 27. But he went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi?" And he said, your servant went nowhere. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper, white as snow. Elisha knew. And it didn't matter whether he saw him with his own two eyes or not. God told him. One way or the other, Elisha knew. Guys, he lied. He lied to Naaman. He lied to Elisha to his face. It seems that his attempts to cover his sin, they fail. I went nowhere. I was here. No, you weren't. And I bet that Elisha could have told him exactly where he hid everything. It's simply clear and spiritually clear that Elisha could have been, could not have been any more clear to Gehazi. I did not want anything payment because, you know, sometimes it's good to take payment, but this was one of those that was not. Because all you did, all you did, is take that faith that that little girl had to send him to me, to take the faith that he had when he finally listened, and you crumpled it up like a piece of garbage by doing what you did. It was all for naught. Their action had been totally disinterested and for the glory of God. But now what are they going to say? Well, you know, his, he healed me, but his servant came and got something from me. So, you know, it really, I, I paid God to do it. And that's not how it worked at all. When he allowed himself to covet what Naaman had, he only thought in terms of money that Naaman possessed. You know, God allowed him to keep those riches. Sure, you can have them. But guess what? You get to take on everything else he had to boot. Now you got his leprosy. Not only for you, but for all your descendants. I saw Gary give me that cringe look, because Gary knows. Gary knew, oh, this is not a good thing. Doesn't God say that I will punish you down to the seventh generation? when i look at and apply the overall example of seven, uh, second kings first chapter 5 to our lives today a few things really really jumped out at me no matter how good and how successful everything is in our lives without god it's all worthless it's worthless and it's our choice when it really comes right down to it we can ask for forgiveness we can ask for healing all we want but if we have expectations of how God is going to do it, we will be sorely disappointed. Because well, God does it in his own way. Not in ours, not the way we want. And when he doesn't do it the way we want, we can get mad and we can fight against him. We can be angry. we can be disobedient to God. And in the end, who did it hurt? Us, doesn't hurt God doesn't hurt anybody that witnesses it. It hurts us. If we don't accept his will, where healing is concerned, or accept the fact that if we ask for sin, that we're already forgiven and we keep dwelling on it and thinking about it and go, oh gosh, I really wish God would forgive this because we can't get it off our minds. All it does is stunt our spiritual growth. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Say that verse 9 with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Say it again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Anytime that you think about it, and you think, well, God, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I confessed it. And yet you still feel guilty. You need to memorize this verse. And say it over and over and over because... Remember, God's word is true. He's not a liar. If he says it, he does it. When we awaken to this fact, we want to celebrate and give it our all. And sometimes we may even have something to constantly remind us of what happened a crutch, so to speak. Things like a necklace with a cross, a ring. Even the carrying of a coin. Oh, now it went all the way under. Excuse me. Oh goodness, you nearly went down back. It's okay, it's fine. Okay, I'm back. The carrying of a coin. See, Rick knows what that one is. It doesn't go anywhere. It's always in my pocket, except when I drop and it rolls under the pole but it's in my pants pocket wherever I go so that it's a constant reminder God is there. This one, of course, is putting on the full armor of God. And it gives me assurance and it reminds me God's always there. This would be like the taking of the dirt. I need something. I need something to remind me of just how great God is and what He did. done for me. And that's how some Christians view it. But you know, every once in a while we come across a Christian who has this really great walk and you can watch what they do. But it's not enough for them to have Christ in their hearts. It's not enough. They want more. It doesn't necessarily have to be money. It doesn't necessarily have to be possessions. It could be power, prestige, and honor. They do deceitful things to acquire this gain and try to hide it from God by lying to themselves about the reasons why they wanted it. I've seen it. Look at some of our, our wonderful tele, uh, tele-evangelists in the past. Think about the ones that say, well, you know, my jet that I have is not good enough. Now I need a brand new jet. Is this way I can get around and, and preach faster to the world? Do they really need these things? But they tell themselves they do. I need power. I need to take my coworkers. I need to run them into the ground so that it makes me look better. Seen that one too? And this is the same as Gehazi. And what does the scripture say though? Psalm 139 verses 1 through 13 even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You can run, but you can't hide. God is everywhere. It doesn't matter if you go to the bottom of the sea, guess what? He's there. You can go all the way out to the furthest reaches of the galaxy and He's there too. You can sit there and close your mind and your eyes and you could blank out your head, but He's there. You can't think of anything. You can't see anything. You can't say anything. He doesn't already know it. You can't hide. When we stubbornly refuse to repent, we will be disciplined by our loving Father. Hebrews 12, verse 7 through 11. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there, whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of the spirits and live? for they they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The Lord's discipline can be severe just like Gehazi's was. You get to keep all that wealth that you took through lying and through deceit. But you also get to take the punishment that he had, the sin that he had. You get to become a leper, just like he did, for the rest of your life, and your children's, and your children's, and your children's. Because it said, all of your descendants. 1 Corinthians 11.30, For this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep just like that punishment that he received. But you know, God still leaves our free will intact. It is still up to us to repent and confess so that he can do the wonders in our lives that he says he will. I look at all the other miracles that we looked at last week, and I see where God took situations and brought us to stronger faith and trust in Him. I think about the times in my past where it was like, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to do this or that? And I turn around at a gas station and I see money blowing in the wind and it's enough to cover it all. Do I take that money and spend it on what I want? No, I pay the bills. Do I pray to God for the someone who is sick and just about to die and have them miraculously be come alive again? Do I give praise and honor to God? Do I worship him and do the happy dance of joy? Or do I go, oh, that's nice. I'm so glad you're still here. Do I trust and rely on him when things are poisoned, so to speak, and let him deal with it? Or do I just throw it out and start from scratch? God is a wonderful, merciful God. And he takes such wonderful care of us when we trust and rely on him. That's what I need us to do for our lives. You'll take care of us. We don't have to worry about anything. Thank goodness for that. Thank God for that mercy and grace.